thank you guys for being here this morning. It's good to see your faces. Why don't you have a seat? And uh, man, it, it's just been a little bit surreal to be back in the southeast and then to come back to the northwest and remember what a dichotomy there is. Even within one given nation, you know, the cultures can be so distinct and uh, we, I'll tell you a little bit more later about our, our time in Georgia. And um, if, if it sounds like I have a little bit more of my Southern accent back, it's because I was just around a bunch of Southern people for eight days and it just rubs off on you. It's like a, a muscle memory. It just comes back. And um, our pastor at Watkinsville, First Baptist, uh, Carlos is a great pastor, a great leader, but he, he's got this cadence with his uh the way he talks and it's just almost like mr rogers uh just and he's thinking on the fly you know and it was just so good to be <laughs> to be there and just kind of sit and chuckle on sunday morning and go oh man i remember these days and it was just it was a great time so thank you for for allowing us the freedom as a family to go and and participate in that uh, reunion. I had my 30-year high school reunion and our church reunion, and I feel old. So, um, thank you, thank you for that, Jared. I look old. That's good. Thank you. Yeah, you're fired. Uh, oh wait, we don't pay you. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> we are back in. Uh, we're in Matthew's gospel primarily this morning. Matthew 12 and uh, Mark 3. I was reading up this week, remembering uh, some of some of the apologetics training I had in the campus ministry days. A guy named Cornelius Van Til uh, was a Dutch American reform philosopher and theologian, and he's the guy who is largely credited as being the originator of what we call modern presuppositional apologetics. And I won't go, get into the depth of all the definitions and the, the nuances of that. But apologetics is the area of study focused on why we believe what we believe. Uh, in fact, the, the Greek word is apologia, and it means to give a reasoned response, which is where we get our English word apology, whether or not your apology is well-reasoned. Um, but Van Til was one of the first apologists in the modern era to make this argument, he argued that um, culture is simply religion externalized. Think about that for a minute. He, he argues that culture, all, all the things that are true about us as a people group, are really religion externalized. In other words, we consistently live out what we really believe. That's everybody consistently lives what they actually really deep down in their hearts believe, though, though not always what we say. What we say doesn't always line up with what we believe. But um, addition, in addition to that, Van Til said, culture is never neutral. It's never neutral. Uh, it's either theistic or it's atheistic. And I, and I know there are many cultures in the world that are polytheistic. They believe in many gods, but we just lump them into, into the theistic group for this purpose. Uh, they believe in entities beyond our physical realm. Um, and, and personally, I, you know, when it comes to this whole thing of 
theism and atheism, I think it takes much more faith to be an atheist, quite honestly. But we're working from this premise this morning that culture, the way that we live as people, is a function of what we really believe about the world, what we can see and what we can't see. So how we live our lives really kind of um, pulls the curtain back on our hearts to show what it is we truly believe. So let that settle in your heart for a minute as you take inventory of your lives, of your families, of your possessions, of uh, all the things in your life. What does your life really say about what you claim you believe? Does it line up with your profession of faith as a born-again Christian, or does it tell another story? Now put a pin in that, and we'll come back to it before we're done this morning. Well, let's apply this to the culture of Israel at the time of Jesus. What, what, did, what did the Jewish faith profess, and how did that profession line up with the way that the Jewish people lived? Well, we know that the Jews were very religious, very religious. We know that they venerated and attempted to follow the law of Moses. Actually, the law that God gave through Moses. It wasn't the law of Moses. That's a little bit of a misnomer. But with their mouths, they honored the God of heaven and earth. But with their lives, it sure seems like things were a little bit murkier at times. It'll help us to remember that God had been speaking to and through the prophets and priests in Israel for a very long time. But when we arrive just prior to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, God has predominantly been silent for a time. And, and if, if you're a culture or a group of people that, um, that worships the one true living God and he has spoken to you through prophets and he's spoken to you through priests, and then you've gone a couple of hundred years without hearing the word of the Lord, there's an insecurity that, that forms in you, okay? And so um, I don't know, uh, how many of you experienced this as a kid? But I remember times when I was in trouble and my parents were just really, they were so angry that in, 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 a, in an insight moment, a little bit of wisdom that, you know, I, I'm not going to punish him right now because I might kill him. And some of you parents have been there. So I'm going I'm to take a break. I'm going to go somewhere, sit down and, and breathe for about five, 10 minutes, and then I'll come back. And uh, it sure seems like something similar happening in that intertestamental period leading us into the new, 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 uh, new covenant. And so, um, you know, I'd be sent to my room and, and I'd have to sit there and wait in silence until my punishment found me. And, and I admit I'm speculating, but I can't help but think that national Israel was experiencing something similar on a much larger scale. It's kind of that, that, that period of time when you know you've done something, you can't, maybe you don't know exactly what you did that's, that made mom or dad angry, but you know that you're in trouble. And so um, the, the foundation of, of the Jewish religious system at this time was the Pharisees, um, the, all their rules in the Torah. The Torah is the, the law of God, it's the Old Testament, and that includes the Ten Commandments, but many people don't know that uh, the 10 are just, uh, there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. Now, you'd think following 613 commandments would be hard, but over time, Jewish religious leaders began to slowly add to these laws in what we call the Mishnah. Um, now, they didn't start out with the intent of adding more 
heavy burden laws on people. They, they actually started with the intent to clarify the Mosaic law. And as they clarified, you know, so, well, so what does this really mean? Okay, well, I think it means this. And in this situation, it can mean this. And then all the clarifications took on the same level of uh, meaning for the people as the law itself. And so um, they, they literally uh, had thousands of new commandments that were created to clarify those 613 commandments. And so into this mix of overzealous legalism, add a healthy dose of expectation on the part of the people because they, they're waiting on their Messiah. They're waiting on the, the Holy One of Israel to come and set them free from bondage. And so this cultural expectation rooted in the Old Testament included a literal, physical kingdom that was coming and the reign and rule of the Messiah on the earth. And, and so they expected the kingdom to manifest immediately and physically on earth and to throw off their Roman oppressors. So while the kingdom will be, still future tense, a physical and spiritual reality, the Jews had this immediate anticipation that their Messiah would inaugurate it in their lifetime. And so into all this, this is the the context into which Jesus steps into human history. In this moment, in the land of Israel, not, not Palestine. Don't, don't, please, at least in my presence, don't ever call it Palestine. Palestine is the Romanized word for Philistia. The Romans called it the name Philistia as an insult on their way out after they destroyed the temple in 70 AD and renamed it Palestina, which was the Philistines. So it was an insult. It's never been Palestine. It's always been Israel. So we pick up the gospel text this morning where, where Marcus left off last Sunday. And thank you, Marcus, for rightly dividing the word of truth. There you are. Thank you, brother. So Matthew 12, 38 to 45. Some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So first, <coughs> we need to ask ourselves, what is the motive in asking for a sign? What's the motive? Why is asking for a sign here, according to Jesus, a bad thing? You know, if you skip a couple of chapters ahead and you go to Matthew 16, you find this explanation for us. Matthew 16, 1 through 4, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and they tested him and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. If you're really the Messiah, do something earth shattering and mind blowing and prove to us that you're the Messiah. And here's how Jesus responded in Matthew 16, verse 2. He answered them, when it's evening, you say, it's going to be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, well, it's going to be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. Jesus said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. 
It's an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now they wanted Jesus to perform on demand. They wanted the the I don't know if you remember the the, the Looney Tunes cartoons and some of the you know the little circus monkey on the leash, you know, that's dancing and has a little hat, you know. They, they wanted to see the dancing monkey. They wanted Jesus to perform on demand, but Jesus gives them an admonition, and it's, and it's rooted in eschatology. It's rooted in this coming age that's far off, that's, that's coming to us. They knew how to read the weather. They knew how to tell what was going to happen with the weather, but they didn't understand how to interpret the signs of the times in which they were living. And so there's a warning for us here as well. Because before Jesus specifically issued a rebuke to the Pharisees that they, they were not going to get a sign except for the sign of Jonah, he gave this general warning. He said this, basically, any generation that's desperately seeking after signs and wonders is considered wicked and adulterous in the eyes of God. So, so how do we make sense of that? that they, they had revelation from God already. They had the Old Testament, the Torah, but they weren't obeying it. They knew it. They'd read it, but they didn't obey it. And yet they clamored for more. Show us a sign, Jesus. Prove to us that you are who you claim to be. So, so then according to Jesus, any generation that desperately seeks after signs and wonders is considered wicked and adulterous. And it, and it begs the question for us as to why would that be the case? Why, why would Jesus say that? Well, going back to the Sermon on the Mount gives us our answer. You remember our time in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because when you hunger and thirst for righteousness and you have a relationship with the one true and living God, he satisfies that longing. He is righteousness. You can be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Righteousness is the essential character quality of God's person. He is holy. He is righteous. And those who are hungry and thirsty for who he is, not, not what he can do, but who he is. You see the difference? Those who are hungry and thirsty for who Jesus is, who God is, they're going to be satisfied. They'll find themselves filled. But if you're constantly chasing after God for what he can do for you, or like some Christians in the United States and Western civilization today who are going from place to place to place every month, there's a new outpouring, there's a new manifestation, there's a new, and they're constantly moving around trying to chase this, these manifestations. What happens is um, you, you're going on to the next miracle and the next outpouring and you never find satisfaction. So, so then let us be satisfied in the character of God, not, in, not just simply in his power, right? And this is what Jesus is getting at. And if I could just run a little further with this theme in order to warn the church in these days, listen to Paul's words to the church at Thessalonica. In, in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 to 12, here's what Paul says about this. He says, I want you guys to know that the coming of the lawless one, that's the, the capital A, Antichrist, that, that coming is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. 
Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but who had pleasure in unrighteousness. So there's this major assumption in the church in America today that I see that if a thing is supernatural, then it must be of God. I see it everywhere. Well, the supernatural thing happened, so it had to be God. No, it could be Satan. He loves to play tricks on people. He loves to misdirect the church. It's my personal belief that what we're witnessing in our day is the great apostasia that, that um, Paul predicted, the, the falling away uh, in the church is happening. Uh, there's a delusion promised in 2 Thessalonians 2. Much of it is built on and around the signs and wonders movement that clamors for experience at the expense of God's word. There are a lot of Christians being deceived because their, their faith is built on experiences, not on the word of God. And we've got to be careful about that. So Getting, getting back to the inter interaction with the scribes and Pharisees, let's not forget this correspondence of Jonah to Jesus, this, this parallel here. Now, Jonah was a prophet, ooh, ooh, but he never really got it. Oh, my son, I love you. Um, if you watch it, you can spot it. Nobody else got it. Nobody, nobody else knows VeggieTales Jonah. Okay, your homework this week, folks, is to watch VeggieTales Jonah. It will, it will edify you. I promise. It will edify you. <laughs> Apparently, many, many of you have not seen VeggieTales Jonah, a bunch of uncultured Philistines. But um, the, the parallel between Jonah and Jesus is a big parallel because there's three days and three nights in the heart of the earth or in the belly of the fish. Location is the differential, but you see that parallel, right? But um, so... So anyway, so, so he's mentioning Jonah here in the text. And then we have the mention of Solomon. And uh, just, just to give you a primer on Solomon, the Jews then and now regard Solomon as the zenith, the apex of Israel's kingdom, because th they had all the power in the region. And everybody looked to them at that moment in, in history as the powerhouse nation in that region. And, and so but their historical view is a little myopic. You know, the kingdom of Israel was powerful and rich, but Solomon, who's heralded as the best king in the history of Israel, uh, he broke all three of the God-given restrictions placed on Israelite kings. Deuteronomy 17 tells us when Jesus said, the, God said to, to Moses, when you come into the land and that the Lord God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it, here's what you're going to do. You're going to say, I want to set a king over us like, like all the other nations around us. So God had already anticipated their duplicity. And he says, okay, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among you, from among your brothers who will set, you'll set as a king over you, but you shall not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must, he must not do these three things. There are three prohibitions. You ready? He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to turn, return to Egypt to acquire many horses. So there's the horse rule. Um, he says, uh, for you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. Now he wasn't, Solomon was not obedient to any of those three prohibitions, right? He had more money, like silver, it says in the, in the biblical text, and I think it's in 1 Kings, that it was like they, they paved roads with it. 
It didn't have any value because there was so much of it. And, and then the horses, this was the, you know, horses were the primary way of conquering. It was, a, it was a very valuable military weapon to have horses. And so he's trading horses. He's, if you read 1 Kings, Solomon's got stables of thousands of horses. So he's multiplied the things that God said in, in, in the wives, right? Because they're going to lead your heart away from the one true and living God. Uh, Sol- Solomon had hundreds of wives and, and, and I think over a thousand concubines, if I remember correctly. And it's crazy to me. It's crazy. So the Jews still largely regard Solomon as the height, the zenith of Israel's kingdom. But God sees it really differently. They see that very differently. Now for extra credit, <laughs> go home and read 1 Kings 11, specifically verse 5 through 11, and connect the dots on what Solomon and Planned Parenthood have in common. Well, let's just summarize this section here, though. The repentance of pagan Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah stood in stark contrast to the repentance and faith in response to Jesus, the promised Messiah. They repented when Jonah preached in pagan Nineveh. They're not repenting in Jewish Israel when the Messiah himself is present. Do you see the contrast? And so Jesus points out that one even greater than Jonah is present and the wisdom of one who reigned over Israel in its peak, Solomon, is nothing compared to the wisdom of the one who's going to reign over the entire planet in the coming kingdom who is standing among them at this moment. And, and, and so the one who's far greater than Solomon has now come. The one who's greater than Jonah has now come. But Israel, corporately, as a nation, refuses to see it. They refuse to see it. So, so we continue with Matthew 12, verse 43. Jesus says, When... The unclean spirit has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. Now he's using the idiom or the word picture of a house when he's really talking about a person. Okay, the, this house, this body that you uh, have in this life, right? So remember early in the chapter, Jesus freed a man from demonic possession in Matthew 12, 22. The Pharisees and others ignored that sign and instead just claimed that Jesus was using satanic power. And after refuting that claim and rebuking the Pharisees for their stubbornness, Jesus shifts the topic back to that of demon possession. And so now Jesus describes what happens to a demon who leaves a person without being sent into the inescapable abyss or the pit that, to await God's judgment, according to Luke 8, right? There's a place where sometimes God sends demons into the pit, and they're just consigned there until the day of judgment. And sometimes they just go, they go out, and then they roam, and they look for somebody to inhabit, Right? So demons or, or unclean spirits away from their victims wander around looking for somewhere to rest, which means they're looking for some person to enter into. And they find it by, uh, by inhabiting human bodies, occupying those people's bodies and tormenting them. Now understand, demons cannot simply enter into any person's body just because they want to. Okay? There are spiritual 
I guess you call really spiritual laws in operation, and demons have to abide by these. Because in order for a demon to be able to enter a person's body, they have to have some kind of legal right uh, to do that or permission to enter in. And so uh, in some cases, the person that's, that's having a demonic spirit interact with them or come into their body is... Um, is engaged in some type of sin that's given the demon a legal right to enter into them. Now, I'll just give you a short list. Common things that allow demons to come in or to have varying degrees of influence in your life or actually inhabit you would include things like um, abusing alcohol for a long time, any, any, any type of drug use. Um, th- that word is pharmakia. In the Greek, it's where we get the word pharmaceuticals, but it has to do with illicit drugs that alter your state of consciousness and separate the connectivity between your soul and your body so that other entities can, can get in there and have varying degrees of influence over you. Um, uh, any type of occult activity, you get into witchcraft, you play with Ouija boards, um, that, that stuff will open you up to that. Obviously, Satan worship. I mean, I think that's a given. Um, Engaging in any aspect of the New Age movement or transcendental meditation. And there's this long list of things that if you dabble in these things, you're opening yourself up to the demonic realm. And we need to be careful. So, so this term unclean spirits means, it just means a demon. Their, their modus operandi, the mode of operation, uh, is to deceive and oppress. And if they can, possess a person and in any way possible, keep people in bondage and away from the truth of God and away from God's word. They hate God's word. They hate it. So those demons that go out of this person seek other habitation. And when they can't find it, they go back to their host. And Jesus says that the person's latter state is worse than the first. You go, well, why why is that? Well, because the demon returns with more homeless demons. (laughs) That's bad news. Jesus says, that the demons return and find the house, the, the person, empty. There's, there's no spirit. In it. Like there's, the Holy Spirit's not in there. So the house is empty. And, and so we, we, that tells us we need to fill our houses. We need to fill ourselves. Like if, we, if we're not asking the Holy Spirit to live in us as Christians and, and then constantly saying, Lord, f- fill me with your spirit today, like that's, that's something we need to constantly be doing because then our house is filled we can't be. We can't succumb to that influence. And Jesus says, um, "Yeah, those demons find the house empty, and and so we need the Holy Spirit um, because no unclean or demonic spirit can enter when the Holy Spirit's living in you. And and you can, yeah, God wants God wants that empty space to be filled up with His knowledge, His presence, His grace, and and that happens when we start maturing in the Lord and and getting in His Word every day. And if you're a Christian. Listen to me. Demons cannot enter into your body because the Holy Spirit's already residing there, right? So invite Jesus in, close the door, bar the door to your heart, to all other entities. Don't let anything else come into your life that's not of God. And and just remember the context here, again, national Israel and their fidelity to God. So Jesus says this generation of Israelites that's rejecting him is like that person who has a demon and he got rid of it for a short while, but then he ended up worse off with seven demons. See, they've got Jesus for just a little while and they're like, oh, we like this guy. He does cool stuff. And then he's going to go to the cross and be gone and they're not going to know what to do about that. So um, it's interesting because 
the hardening of the Israelites' hearts towards their own Messiah came upon them regarding Jesus after he had gone to the cross. It, it, it's, go, go on YouTube this week and just, just YouTube witnessing to Jews. And watch some of these videos where Christians are, um, even is, Israeli Christians, born-again Jews, are ministering and they're, and they're saying, hey, I want to tell you about this person. I want to see if you can guess who I'm talking about. And they start to describe Jesus without saying his name. And they, and they talk about his righteousness and what he did and just give examples of what he did in the Gospels. And then these, even some of these rabbis are listening and like, oh, that man was very righteous. And oh, that man, you know, and they're praising this person that they don't know. And then at the end of the encounter, the, per, the, the person who's been speaking says, this was Jesus of Nazareth. And you'll see them just go, Bleh! you know, throw their hands up in the air or rip up the paper they're holding or start cursing because they can't, they can't deal with the fact that it's Jesus. Their hearts are still hardened, largely. So pray for if you if you got Jewish friends, pray for them. Uh, let's let's keep going here. Section eighty one in the harmony is Matthew twelve forty six to fifty, uh, Mark three and Luke eight, and, and it's the same passage three times. But I'll read it to you. Uh, it says while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. But he replied to the man who told him, "Who is my mother?" And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Mark's gospel, Mark 3, says it this way, Mark 3, 31. And his mother and brothers came, standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And the crowd was standing around him. And they said, Hey, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at all those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And then Luke's gospel, Luke 8, 19 to 21, same account. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the words of God and do it. So Jesus' biological family is playing the family card, and they assume that they have clout at a gathering like this because they share the same genetic information. But Jesus is redefining family in the context of the kingdom. And, and for every born-again believer in Jesus, our Father is God himself, the creator of heaven and earth. There is no heavenly mother. I don't know if you've come out of Roman Catholicism or that's been an influence in your life. There is no heavenly mother. You won't find it once in the Bible in a good context. You'll find it in the context of pagan worship and Semiramis and, and, uh, and, and all these cults, these pagan cults that worship the queen of heaven. It's never been a Christian thing ever, ever, ever. And, and so, so, we have brothers and sisters. Our older brother is Jesus himself. And then everyone else from our physical life on earth, regardless of our biological relationship to them, is either a brother or sister in Christ to us. And we've all been adopted as God's children if we put our faith in Jesus. And being a child of God is not a small thing. It's not a small thing. We're equals in God's sight in terms of value and in terms of his love for us. Now, that doesn't mean that 
uh, Christian, like if you're if you're a Christian teenager or preteen at home, you think I, I could go home today and pull that card on mom and dad and my saved parents because we're equals. <laughs> mom and dad, we're equals. Pastor said uh, we're all on the same footing before Jesus, and so uh, I'm no longer under authority here at home because we're equals in the kingdom. Um, in fact, if, if if you are a young person living at home, just look look up here for a minute, okay? Your family. Listen to me. Your family, jacked up as they might be from time to time, okay, is is the learning community that God himself picked for you, okay? Don't dismiss that. He put you in that learning community, and that means you've got some things to learn. Um, Even in the context of those boomers that are raising you, everybody over 25 is a boomer right now, apparently. I don't know what that happened. But God put you in a learning community, so learn what he wants to teach you through your parents and your extended family, your grandparents, your uncles, your aunts. Sometimes those lessons are not not like positive lessons, like I've got an uncle that taught me how to ride my bike. No, it's like I've got an uncle who has a uh, drug problem, and I'm watching that going, I never want to go there. But learn what God has to teach you through your family. And all of this speaks to the nature of the kingdom. When I stand in glory, I know my, I will know my mom as my mom, okay? But that will not be the primary relationship. That will not be the basis of our relationship in glory. The basis of our relationship is going to be Jesus. Jen and, and all three of my kids are going to relate to me on the basis of being in Christ, not primarily our relationships while we were in this life. And the same is true for you and your biological family and the people that you know if you're saved and you're in the kingdom. And that's amazing to me. But getting back to the passage, because Jesus' legs are focused on the kingdom, this is how he responds to his mother and his siblings. See, they've got to understand that he's not at their beck and call because of their genetics. He's not going to do them any special favors because of their biological ties. Everybody who comes into the kingdom does so the same way, by faith alone in the Son of God. And, And we're saved by grace through faith to obey in the power of the Spirit. So what do we do with all this? How do we apply this? Well, remember when we started this morning, we said that we consistently live out what we really believe. We all do. Whether good or bad, we consistently live out what we really believe. And I ask you to take inventory of your relationships and your possessions, and then to ask yourself the question, what does my life really say about what I, what I really believe? Deep down, what, is it, what do I really believe? Does it line up with your profession of faith or does it tell another story? We, we had an incredible time in Athens, Georgia, in Atlanta and Athens this week. It's really a tale of two reunions. I had my 30-year, I can't believe, every time I say that, I can't believe it, 30-year high school reunion and mostly it was all the same people doing all the same things. Wanda, it was just funny. We were, we were at this hotel in Atlanta. Jen and I had driven from Athens 90 minutes to come to this Saturday night reunion. And we were there, and, it, and I was just baffled because we we're all almost 50. And it was loud 80s music just blasting in this ballroom. And I'm like, man, where's, like, can we just have some light jazz or Harry Connick Jr. and just sit around and talk? It was funny. It's like, oh, I'm I'm almost fifty. Apparently, all these people think they're still in their twenties. Um, so we, you know, there's some good moments there for us um, at that reunion. 
there was a couple, one of my best friends from high school and his wife, and, and they were sharing with us some medical things in her life. And we, we just went out of the ballroom and around the corner and found a quiet place and prayed together and asked the Lord to heal her body. And um, it was sweet, but I, I just, it's so interesting, you know, seeing family in Atlanta, family in Athens. Um, we, when we got to Athens, Georgia, we arrived at our host home we were able to stay with another family that was going to be in that host home. And we had served together in campus ministry for years. And so this was like the sweet, there's just a, a, a like eight days of reunions and many reunions and being with people who love Jesus as much as we love Jesus and sharing memories about those days together on the campus and, and just telling stories and our kids being with us and hearing some of those stories and go, oh yeah, I don't know if I told that one. Um, but it was, it was just a sweet, sweet eight days filled with reconnection to people who are dear to us and who have served in, or are serving in full-time ministry. And um, surprises, big hugs, meals together, sitting up late laughing about old jokes and crazy things we had done. It, it, it really was just a little foretaste of heaven. Just seeing other believers that I hadn't seen in years and remembering some of those exploits and what happened and, and just laughing and, and enjoying. Those eight days of being reunited with people that we love, that we had poured into, that we had served with and cried with and suffered with and rejoiced with, they're so filled with joy and peace. And I, I just don't think there's any way to adequately describe that experience with words. But we all had ministry and the Lord Jesus in common. And the kingdom of God is what bound us together. And it's what binds us together. And underneath all that joy and all that laughter and some, some tears along the way was this strong undercurrent of lives lived in accordance with faith in Jesus Christ. Not just the mouthing of the right words, but lives lived with the gospel as the first priority. Everyone that we spent time with in those days were people who were faithfully living what they said they believed. And more than once, I was reminded of Paul's appeal to the church in Rome in chapter 12, where he says to them, I appeal to you. I, I, I'm just crying out that you would do this, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies, your, your lives now here in this, this world as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, because that's your spiritual worship. Ultimately, that's the way that we worship God, by living what we say we believe. He, he, Paul goes on, he says in verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that by testing, you can discern what is the will of God, what's good and acceptable and perfect. See, that's Paul's way of saying, Consistently live what you believe. Consistently live what you believe. All those people we saw and hugged and reminisced with and laughed with and shared meals with had all made the same decision to live out their lives without apology, to, to follow the Lord Jesus, whatever it cost them. And our fellowship was at the deepest possible level, I believe, that we could have in this life. I think it'll be deeper when we're in heaven and we're glorified. But it was as deep as we could go just to be together. And all that just brings me back around to the challenge, this question that every one of us has to answer. Do you have saving faith in the Son of God? 
Do you just have religion? Do you have saving faith in Jesus? Or are you just going through the motions? And if you have life in the Son, are you sharing it with others? See, religion is a broad path, and many there be who find it and walk right along it, right into the fires of hell. Religion is inclusive. In fact, it's so inclusive that some even attempt to use Jesus for their own fame and personal gain. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves attempting to use and manipulate the very Son of God for our own gain and our own purposes. But see, saving faith is something altogether different. Saving faith begins with a heart of submission. It's a heart that wants to bow the knee to King Jesus. And that submission before the king leads us to, to right obedience to his will and his ways. And, and then that submission compounded with that obedience, it opens the door for Jesus to be able to use us in the world. I said this at the beginning. We all live out what we really believe. All of us, every day, we all live what we really believe. Our lives play out in our decisions every day, and they tell the tale of our love for Jesus or our duplicity. So the question I want to ask you this morning is, what picture are you portraying for your family, your coworkers, the people in your neighborhood? What's the picture? What does your life say about your love for Jesus and his will and his ways? My prayer this morning is that every single person here under the sound of my voice would choose today and every day after to die to self and to live for Christ in the power of the Spirit. And if you've never put your, your faith in Christ alone for salvation, you could do that today. And I'd love to talk to you about that. Please don't leave here without talking with me. Uh, seek, seek me out when we're finished here this morning. But in the meantime, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, your daily renewal in our lives, that you seek us and that, and that we, in response to what you've already done, we seek you in return. We want to be close to you. We want to draw near to you. We want to know you more intimately. Lord, would you help us in these darkening days to be a light in a dark place, to be unreserved, unashamed, unabashed about the gospel. The clock is ticking down and and, and we want to be about your work in the earth, Lord. Would you help us? We are frail. We are weak. We are but flesh, Lord. We, we, we don't have the power in ourselves to, to accomplish anything. We just pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit and direct our steps and use us in these days. Pray all these things in your matchless and mighty name. Amen. Culture is a function of what we really believe about the world, both seen and unseen. The question is, what does your life say about what you really believe? Does it line up with a profession of faith or does it tell another story? Do you have saving faith in the Son of God or do you have religion? Let's heed the call this week to die to ourselves and to live for Christ in the power of the Spirit as we take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. Emmaus Road Church, you are sent. Thank you.